This is Daryl Wood, host of Run to Win, the Daryl Wood Show on Faith Talk 1500. First, let me say this show is your show. That's why no matter what I discuss or which guests I interview, your input is value. If it's in the news, on TV, or at the movies, whether political, social, economic, or whatever, at some point I'm talking about it on Run to Win, the Daryl Wood Show, Monday through Thursday from 4 to 6 p.m. on Faith Talk 1500. Thank you for listening to Embrace the Truth, the teaching and apologetics ministry of Abdu Murray. Abdu spent most of his life as a serious Muslim, but after examining the evidence for the gospel and struggling with the emotional price that would come with changing his entire worldview, Abdu committed his life to Jesus Christ. Since coming to the Christian faith, he's become an international apologist, author, and professor. He's dedicated to engaging non-Christians with the credibility of the gospel in ways that touch the heart and the mind, as well as equipping Christians to do the same. Support for this ministry comes from our listeners' generous gifts and donations. For more information, please call 888-84-TRUTH or visit our website at www.embracethetruth.org. Do you hunger for answers, or are you comforted by the protection of opinions? This week on Embrace the Truth, Abdu is joined by Dr. Everett Piper, president of Oklahoma Wesleyan University. They will delve into the difference between ideas and opinions and how that distinction relates to the gospel. I'm excited about today's show. I'm always about, excited about the, about the shows, uh, but uh, this one I'm excited about as well because uh, I have a special guest, Dr. Everett Piper. Dr. Piper and I met, uh, or we spent some time with Josh McDowell, and I heard his his philosophy on education, and I was just incredibly impressed uh, about his work, his passion for education, and the work he's doing at Oklahoma Wesleyan University in Bartlesville, Oklahoma. And while we were talking, we discussed his book, Why, I'm a, Why I Am a Liberal and Other Conservative Ideas. And I thought it was fascinating. We had a great discussion out on a balcony. So I knew right then and there I had to have Dr. Piper on the show. Uh, Dr. Piper has served as the fifth president of Oklahoma Wesleyan University in Bartlesville, Oklahoma, since August of 2002. His credentials include a BA from Spring Arbor University right here in Michigan, an MA from Bowling Green State University, and a PhD from my wife's alma mater, Michigan State University. He challenges his academic and political peers for what he calls their fallacious Orwellian duplicity of intolerant tolerance. And that's the kind of thing you're going to get from Dr. Piper, those kind of insights. He writes for numerous publications, including the Examiner Enterprise, Chuck Colson's Breakpoint magazine, and Crosswalk.com. And he resides with his wife, Marcy, and their two children in Bartlesville, Oklahoma. Welcome, Dr. Piper, to the show. Hi, Abdu. How are you? I'm just very, very well, and I hope you're doing well. I'm doing great. I'm delighted and honored, humbled that you've got me on the program today. Oh, excellent. Well, I, I was very excited to have you on. We, we had such a great conversation, and uh, in some ways, we, we definitely have these like-minded ideas about um, that ideas have consequences, and that we have to make sure that everyone realizes that their ideas do, in fact, have lasting consequences. Uh, so I'm delighted to have you on. Well, my my, my pleasure. Um, I wanted to talk uh, and talk about a couple of topics actually today. One, and the first one being your book, Why I'm a Liberal and Other Conservative Ideas. I love the title. It's just a fantastic title. And I'd really like if you could unpack for us and for the audience why you chose the title because it's an, it, it's, it's, it's an eye catcher. Well, and that's one of the reasons I chose it. I obviously, um, especially the, on the cover, the word liberal is in quotation marks. So I, mm-hmm. I'm playing with words a bit. 
But I'm also doing it in a historical sense. I'm recovering the traditional and historical definition of what the word liberal meant at one time. Uh, context. The Liberal Arts Academy, a liberal arts university, was established in the medieval era to educate a free culture, a free society, a free man. So the word liberal meant liberty and liberation, freedom and justice. It meant the effort of the academy, the church, quite frankly, to educate uh, its citizens and educate its parishioners on how to be free. Hmm. And therefore, the historical context for the word liberal is one that enjoys a robust exchange of ideas, a robust debate, because there's confidence that in the end, the truth will judge the debate, not power, not politics, not you or me, not opinion. Truth will judge the debate. And my contention today is this, that as a conservative, a proud conservative, one who believes in conserving things, Mm -hmm. an owl, a tree, and a whale, yes, but also the time-tested truths of God, Mm -hmm. that if a conservative um, believes in conserving those things, conserving truth, conserving God's revelation, he or she has more liberty to engage in a debate than the progressive left-of-center counterpart. Proof, proof to the point. If I want to debate global warming, for example, mm-hmm. at a secular institution, I probably will be told that we've already made up our mind on those things. We don't want to debate that any longer. Mm-hmm. If I want to debate sexual morality, sexual politics, at a secular institution, a liberal institution, if you will, mm-hmm. I will be told, well, we've already made up our mind on those things, and we're not going to tolerate your intolerance, which <laughs> is an interesting thing for them to say. Right. Uh, that's another conversation for a little bit later on. Mm-hmm. So the irony is that I don't have the liberty mm. to debate within these liberal institutions as much as I do within the conservative institution that believes in the truth of Christ and truth of Scripture. Mm. Jesus told us, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. It's that truth that gives us the liberty, liberation, and makes us classical liberals, interestingly enough. Does that make sense? Absolutely. You know, you actually make a great statement in in your book that sort of um, leads us into a a question here. You say, I'm a liberal because of my passion for for liberal arts education, an education that is driven by a hunger for answers rather than the protection of opinion. And you've made some mention of this before, just in your previous comments, but could you unpack that for us? What do you mean by the hunger for answers rather than the protection of opinions in the liberal arts education sort of academic field? Well, here's, here's an example. A few years ago, I gave a commencement address here at Oklahoma Wesleyan University, and I stepped before the students, and I said, I'm up here today, and I'm in my funny cap and gown, and you're out there in the audience today with your friends and your families there with you, and you guys are in your funny cap and gown, and I'm going to give you a long-winded commencement address. It's going to be way too long and way too boring. I should know better, because that's not why you're here. Mm -hmm. And after I'm done with my commencement address, students, I'm going to call you forward. You're going to walk across the stage. I'm going to shake your hand. I'm going to hand you a diploma, and I'm going to whisper in your ear, congratulations, you just got a degree in opinions. Mm. Okay? And I was quiet for about 30 seconds, and I let it sink in. You could hear a pen drop in the auditorium. Sure. And then I stopped, and I looked at all of the students and all the parents and all the grandparents, and I said, what I just said is absurd. How dare I suggest that after four years of education, four years of tests, four years of quizzes, four years of studying, four years of memorization, four years of paying a tuition, that all you got out of this educational experience was an opinion? And then I said to the students, opinions don't matter. I don't care what your opinion is. And you shouldn't care that much about my opinion. That's not why you get a college degree. 
You go to school to learn something, and hopefully you've obtained some measure of truth beyond, above and beyond what you had when you started. And if you want to debate with me and say, oh, well, that's just your opinion, let me throw this out. If you're an engineer and you're designing airplanes on the basis of your opinion, would you please tell me which airplane it is you designed? Because the thing won't fly and you know it. You're not going to get it, nor am I. It's right. dangerous. Mm. Opinions always enslave. Opinions never set you free. Mm. Pol Pot had an opinion, and Mao had opinions, and Robespierre had opinions, and Stalin and Hitler had opinions. Opinions always lead to bondage. It's only the truth that sets you free. Mm. And that's what I mean by being held in bondage to opinions other than being set free uh, through the quest of pursuing what's true. Well, that's uh, that's very insightful. I, I think everyone should, who's listening to this should literally write that one down, that opinions always enslave. It's the truth that sets us free. Absolutely. you know, And that's why uh, folks who listen to my show might be wondering, why am I talking about sort of like uh, the politics and philosophies of liberal arts education on a show about apologetics? Well, you just gave us exactly the reason why we're doing that, because mm-hmm. apologetics is all about truth, and you're talking about um, the, 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 the place where truth is supposed supposed to be um, uh, highlighted, espoused, and um, ideas debated with an open honesty where truth is supposed to come out, which is the uh, the liberal arts education sphere. Um, so I really appreciate that. Now, you have a, uh, a chapter in your book uh, called, Do You Want an Answer? And this is this to me is one of the, the insightful parts of the book um, that really, I think, gets to the heart of the intellectual matter, if you will. Um, and you quote some, some C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce about the integrity and honesty that we lack in the field of inquiry. And I want you to unpack a little bit of, the, of this for us. But the quote I'm talking about specifically is uh, from C.S. Lewis. Once you were a child, once you knew that inqu- what, what inquiry was for, there was a time when you asked questions because you wanted answers and were glad when when you had found them. Thirst was made for water, inquiry for truth. I just find that incredibly ironic because the idea was that when you were immature, you actually asked questions for the reasons questions were made. (laughs) And when we got more mature, so-called, you know, maybe inquiry became less about that and more about something else. Talk a little bit about that. There's so much to... There's so much to say there, so you may have to stop me here. I, I want to be careful not to dominate the, uh, with this one answer. But isn't it isn't it so true that the older you get, the more arrogant you get in your own thinking, and mm. you therefore become more closed-minded rather than more open? Mm. In fact, Gerard Reed, in a book on C.S. Lewis, said that Lewis was one that confronted the secular academy and, and post-modernity for its celebration of going fishing and casting its nets through the water and catching no fish as the result. In other words, we go out to go fishing and we put a fishing fishing line in the ocean or we cast a net in the ocean and there's a a goal, there's an intent, there's a purpose in doing that. You want to catch something. The fisherman doesn't come back to shore and celebrate the fact that his nets are empty. Mm -hmm. But today we send our students off to universities, and when they graduate, we have this celebration on commencement day that they learned nothing, (laughs) that all they have is is an opinion, and that they have a bunch of little constructs that they built up throughout the course of their four-year education, and you've spent $20,000, $30,000 a year for them to learn nothing but to celebrate their own feelings, their own existential reality, and their own opinions. 
And Gerard Reed, as well as Lewis, is saying, that's ridiculous. That's lunacy. It's not even what education is for. Shouldn't you go fishing and celebrate the fact that you actually catch something? And if you're not catching something, shouldn't you adjust your methods? Shouldn't you get a different net? Shouldn't you get a different boat? Shouldn't you choose a different methodology so that you've actually got success? If you're going off to college or university and you catch nothing, you learn nothing, and you're celebrating nothing that's true. And in fact, you've been told that the exact opposite. All is a postmodern construct, and it's just built up from within. Basically, it's the original sin. You shall be as God, and you can define everything now. You can decide what's right and wrong and good and evil. That's what Satan told us in the Garden of Eden when he challenged Eve, that God, God really didn't say, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because he knows when you do, you will become like him. Mm -hmm. And in the university system today, we become as God, and therefore we can define everything, and therefore we know nothing. Now, is that what you're talking about when you, you in the book, talk about a lot about postmodernity and the ideas of sort of this, this relativistic um, but also uh, not so relativistic idea of we dictate what's right and wrong um, based on opinions? Is that what you're talking about there? Yeah, I, I could butcher all of human history and divide it into three categories, Abdu. Mm -hmm. uh, any historians listening to this is probably going to cringe, but it, it's, I think it's a helpful tool. Mm -hmm. If you took all of human history and divided it into three categories, I would argue you could do, you could do this. You could have pre-modernity, you could have modernity, and then you would have post-modernity. Mm -hmm. Now, pre-modernity would be pre-modern. It would be everything up until the Enlightenment. Um, it would be uh, Moses, it would be Plato, it would be Aristotle, it would be the Apostle Paul. It would be the supernatural. So pre-modern was the supernatural. Man believed that truth came from outside of his nature, outside of himself. That the gods or God, in the case of Moses, Yahweh, uh, Paul, and his acknowledgement that Jesus is the Son of God, we agreed that knowledge and truth was supernatural. It was revealed by something bigger than man. Now, in modernity, we come along and we say, well, if you can't taste it, touch it, see it, or smell it, it just isn't so. Mm -hmm. And so you move from pre-modernity, which is supernatural, to modernity, which is simply natural. Mm -hmm. So if it isn't something that you can sense through the senses and through natural revelation or natural instinct, then it just isn't so. So you go from pre-modernity, which is supernatural, to modernity, which is simply natural. And what's post-modernity? This is where I'm going with this. Mm -hmm. Post-modernity is not supernatural. It's not simply natural. It's superman. We elevate ourselves to be as God through pantheism or panentheism and our, our elevation of our own constructed utopias through Marxism and the devalue of his human being and the elevation of all the elites as being as God, Gnosticism revived, that we become supermen. And the Nazis had a word for it, for the Aryan race, the Ubermensch. Mm. Well, that's an interesting um, uh, juxtaposition. It's actually an interesting comparison that I've often found to be fascinating. When you look at sort of a pantheistic or panentheistic worldview, which basically has a, an idea of that which is beyond us or transcendent, but that's us, by the way. We, we are the transcendent. And then you look at sort of an atheist paradigm, an atheistic naturalistic paradigm that claims to be modernistic or modern, but at the same time says we are the arbiters of all that is good and right and wrong, and we're the ones who decide that we are like God. You see the strange marriage between 
an atheistic paradigm or a secular paradigm and a non-secular sort of pantheistic paradigm. And it's just a very strange um, link between the two. And I think that we sort of become enamored with that in this in this culture. Well, I was just reading this past week in uh, Darwin's Origin of the Species and his subsequent book, uh, Descent of Man, mm -hmm. where uh, obviously Darwin was ar arguing for a materialistic worldview, an mm -hmm. atheistic worldview. Mm -hmm. um, he wanted to purge all of science and all of knowledge from any revelatory truth, any knowledge of God. Mm -hmm. But in purging a culture of God, he created a vacuum. And whenever you create a vacuum, you know, elementary physics tells us it's going to be filled with something. So when you create the vacuum within our soul and within our culture, uh, by taking God out, you're going to fill it with something. And it, it will be filled with the elevation of man. We will have to become as gods because somebody has to make decisions. Somebody right. has to decide how we're going to function. Mm -hmm. And if it's not going to be God, it's going to be you or me or somebody else with power. Mm -hmm. And we see the lesson of the French Revolution. And that is when Robespierre purged the French culture of God, it didn't work. Sooner or later, you had to fill that vacuum with something else to have some level of civilization and civility. Well, not civility, civilization, I suppose. You're right. Control, power, politics. Right. Robespierre elevated himself to being godlike in his control of French culture, and ultimately he suffered the fate of his own invention, the guillotine. Mm, yeah, that, that, that's right. And that, that's one of those ironies that this stuff always kills itself. When you have self-defeating statements like there is no such thing as absolute truths and then you're making an absolute statement about absolute truths it's self-defeating but what you just pointed out is not only did the statements uh die under their own knives but the philosophies that are born by them end up dying under their own knives and in roast pierre's case quite literally so absolutely richard weaver's 1946 if i remember correctly seminal work ideas have consequences mm -hmm. ideas are always directional Ideas, and this is your ministry, Abdu, and this is why people listen to you, and they need to continue to listen to you. Well, thank you. Ideas always bear fruit. They never lie fallow. Ideas are directional. They always take you somewhere. And ideas that are good will take you to good places. Ideas that are bad will take you to bad places, and they'll bear bad fruit. If they're bad ideas, they'll bear good fruit if they're good ideas. Ideas, ideas are important. In fact, Thomas Carlyle was once uh, at a party. Mm -hmm. And people were criticizing him for always talking uh, about ideas. He never would let down his guard. He would never just relax. Mm -hmm. Somebody said to him, you're always coming in here and talking highbrow, and you're always sharing your ideas with us. And his response was this. There was once a man named Robespierre, and he wrote a book. Mm -hmm. The second edition of which is bound in the skins of those who ignored the first. In other words, if you ignore the ideas yeah. of the French Revolution and the lessons that we should learn therein, you are bound to repeat history because the consequences of those ideas, the direction of them, will be very negative. And we can just all we have to do is to look to the lessons of history to understand that. Absolutely, and I think that that's one of those things where, um, when sort of the consequences of this idea of a relativistic moral framework that, that that superimposes itself on you know sort of revisionist history ideas, we revise history to uh, sort of fit our our current moral senses instead of actually taking history as it objectively was. And then we just repeat the mistakes over and over again, not because we didn't see what history showed us. We just refuse to listen to what history showed us. Um, and so that's, I think, one of the dangers we have in having this sort of, again, ideas have consequences. You can look at the same facts and come up with totally different, different conclusions, not because those conclusions are warranted, but because you want them. You know, I once had a, a liberal 
young man debating with me at a Christian camp, actually one camp that you're going to be speaking at in a couple of years, um, a kid came up to me and he said, you know, the problem with you conservatives is you always think you're right. This is a very bright kid. This uh-huh. is a very bright kid. Mm-hmm. And my response to him is, well, do you think you're right for criticizing me for being right? In other words, it's a trap. Right. He can't get out of the self-refuting claims of his own concerns. Mm-hmm. The problem with conservatives is you always think you're right. Well, obviously, that left-wing person thinks he's right for condemning me for thinking I'm right. And therefore, the condemnation of people that are right is a self-condemnation. Right. It's like saying, I can't tolerate your tolerance, or I hate those hateful people. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that nothing is sure. I'm absolutely confident there are, there are no absolutes. And I know that nothing can be known. Right. Everything I just said is literal nonsense. It's like watching a dog chase its tail. Mm-hmm. But everything I just said is taught at your alma mater and mine mm-hmm. as somehow being highbrow in a intellectual content when it is actually so self-refuting and so vacuous that it can make your head spin. Well, I can actually recall sitting in a class on legal ethics where one of the questions we had to answer was something along the lines of this. Uh, you know, you, you have a client, uh, you represent an insurance company, and one of your insureds comes in and uh, he's injured from an accident. You have an independent medical examination done uh, to see if, you know, there, there's something that should be done about this. And your medical examination shows that the person actually has a very severe heart condition that's like a ticking time bomb. Nothing to do with the accident. The question is, do you have an obligation to have your doctor tell the patient this about themselves? And I was shocked, absolutely shocked, that that was a debatable issue. At my mm. uh, Now, again, we're talking about up for debate. We can have things that are up for debate, sure. But some things are just – if you're in a law school, a top 10 law school, at some point, that shouldn't be a debatable issue. How that is even an issue that we should be debating just – staggers the imagination in an ethics class of all things for heaven's sake so absolutely what you're talking about is is absolutely happening in fact you give an example of something that um sort of plays into this uh it's the story of frankie Mm. tell us the story of frankie okay frankie was actually a girl from your area if i recall correctly she was from suburban ann arbor i can't remember which given community but somewhere in the detroit ann arbor sprawl there in between the two towns she came from a fairly upper upper middle class community she was recruited to play soccer at my alma mater spring arbor university so here we've got a 18 year old kid that's chosen to go to a christian college to play soccer well i was a a dean of students then and one of the things i did was teach the freshman orientation class and basically the class that teaches kids how to survive during their first semester of college life. Mm-hmm. One of the things I wanted kids to do was to realize the value of a Christian liberal arts uh, philosophy. And I decided to use the movie Schindler's List to get them to start thinking about right and wrong, good mm-hmm. and evil. Sure. Now, we all know what the movie Schindler's List is about. It's about the Holocaust. It's, a very, well, it's very well done by Steven Spielberg, and it is not entertaining. It's very hard to watch because of the graphic nature of the violence of the Nazis right. exterminating the Jews. Sure. Well, I had my students write their obligatory five-page paper summarizing the movie, but what I wanted them to do was to critique the message, to, to critique the moral nihilism of the Nazi regime and what we as Christian learners should be doing about that. Frankie watched the movie. She obviously paid attention. She wrote, wrote a decent paper that summarized the movie well. But here's the kicker to this story. The very last sentence in her paper after she summarized the movie was this, quote-unquote, who am I to judge the Germans? Mm. Now, that should cause all of the listeners that are paying attention to you right now on this program 
to just shiver. Absolutely. Because if we've raised up a generation of young leaders that can watch the Holocaust take place in front of their very eyes, watch Germans walk up to Jews and shoot them in the head, watch Germans truck uh, uh, Jewish people off in boxcars and the trains to the gates of Auschwitz and Dachau, if we can watch that and then after consuming it as entertainment, conclude nothing but, who am I to judge the Germans? We're in trouble. Yeah. Because there's no moral judgment of right or wrong any longer. Frankie had been taught in your schools, in your community, Mm -hmm. that she had no basis whatsoever in making a moral judgment. Join us next week as Abdu concludes his conversation with Dr. Everett Piper, tackling the fruit of ideas and the bondage of opinions and the role that both play in education today. Dear friends, this is Abdu Murray, and I'm excited to tell you about my brand new book from InterVarsity Press, Grand Central Question, Answering the Critical Concerns of the Major Worldviews. I'm equally excited to tell you that along with that book, we're offering some great free bonus materials for those who buy the book. Now, no matter where you got Grand Central Question from, whether it's from our website, Amazon.com, a bookstore, or even if you got it as a gift, just go to GrandCentralQuestion.com, that's GrandCentralQuestion.com, and click on the free bonus content tab in the middle of the page. You'll be asked to provide your name, email address, and the date and place where you purchased the book. You don't need a receipt, and you don't need to provide us with any additional information. We'll send you an email with a link to access four free videos to go along with each section of the book, in which I give you additional, concise evidence for the credibility of the gospel. And those videos track the four sections of the book. And you'll get a link to a free downloadable study guide as well. That study guide is tailored for both individual and group studies, and there's a section for a single-session study or a multiple-session study that you can do over a course of weeks. These videos and resources are meant to help you absorb and later use the material in Grand Central Question, and I pray that they'll be a blessing to you. Thank you for tuning in to Embrace the Truth. We hope that this message has engaged your heart and mind. To learn more about Abdu and the Embrace the Truth team, please call us at 888-84-TRUTH or visit us online at www.embracethetruth.org. Sponsored by Embrace the Truth International.